Well, the confidence level that I have handing things off to him is a beautiful thing and evidence of God's grace. Um, Will you pray with me for Josh as we get going here this morning? Father, it really is a marvelous thing to see your plan put into action, to see you bring uh, not just details together, but bring lives together. And I just thank you for Josh and Lori and for the way that they have surrendered themselves to you and your will. And now we're just asking for you to pour out your blessing on them and on our students through them. And I thank you for everything that you have done to bring us to this point, for all the different things that have uh, been necessary, some of them very hard, others very celebratory. But every piece, every piece has been a part of your plan, and we're so grateful for that. And I ask, Father, that uh, as we move forward here, that you would just bless Josh in this ministry, that you would give him everything that he needs to, to be the, the vessel that you want to use to reach our teenagers here. Pray for our students, that they would just uh, feel that instant connection with Josh, and, and that there would be just a, a wonderful start uh, to their time together here in ministry. Thank you so much for being sovereign, uh, for being so much higher than above everything around us, all the things that tie us down. Uh, We know that we can count on you and your plan, and we commit Josh and ourselves to you in that plan, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. It's autumn in New York. November 2004, freezing rain, weary drivers, one carload of delinquents on a joyride. You got the picture? Their spree begins at the local cineplex. Bored with action flicks, the teenagers decide to act one out. They break into a car, grab a credit card, and proceed to a video store. There they charged $400 worth of DVDs and video games. Why not pick up a few groceries while they're at it? A surveillance tape catches the kids selecting a 20-pound turkey. Now remember the turkey. Pedal to the metal in a silver Nissan, the kids move along an irregular line intersecting with a Hyundai containing one Victoria Ruvolo. The two cars cross paths at approximately 12.30 a.m. Victoria Ruvolo, 44, is heading for her Long Island home. Having attended her 14-year-old niece's vocal recital, she looks forward to home and hearth, particularly hearth. She's ready to unravel the overcoat and scarves, burrow under an electric blanket, and rest her weary self. Maybe the silver Nissan approaching from the east catches Victoria's eye. Maybe not. Later, she won't be sure. She certainly won't recall the image of a teenage boy leaning out the window of the Nissan as the car approaches. Nor will she retain any memory of the bulky projectile taking flight from his hands. This is the part about the turkey. The 20-pound bird crashes through Victoria's windshield. It bends the steering wheel inward, smashes into her face, and breaks every bone it encounters. Victoria will remember none of this, frankly a stroke of mercy. 
Eight hours of surgery and three weeks of recovery later, however, friends and family fill in the blanks. Victoria lies impassively in a bed in Stony Brook University Hospital and listens to every detail. Yet her emotions are difficult to discern, given the mask her face has become. Shattered like pottery, now stapled together by titanium plates, an eye affixed by synthetic film, a wired jaw, a tracheotomy. The public reaction is much more vigorous. The media has run with this story. Weblogs follow every new detail of arrest and arraignment. Over Thanksgiving, New Yorkers whisper prayers of gratitude that they were not Victoria Ruvalo. Over Christmas, they cherish their health and their fortunes a little bit more than usual. Over the new year, they cry out for justice. Internet bloggers and TV pundits suggest what they'd do if they could be in a room for five minutes with those punks in the Nissan. They'd especially love to lay hands on Ryan Cushing, the 18-year-old who heaved the turkey. His face should be shattered. His life should be in ruins. That's how the man in the streets sees it. But it's all in the hands of the justice system. On Monday, August 15, 2005, Ryan and Victoria meet face to reconstructed face in the courtroom. Nine agonizing, titanium-bolted months have passed since the attack. Victoria manages to walk into the courtroom unaided, a victory in itself. A trembling Ryan Cushing pleads guilty to a lesser charge. Sentence, a trifling six months behind bars, five years probation, a bit of counseling, a dash of public service. People shake their heads in righteous indignation. Is that all the punishment we can dish out? When did this country become so soft on crime? Let's lock up all these criminals and throw away the key. Who is responsible for this plea bargain anyway? The victim. That's who. The victim requests leniency. Ryan makes his plea and then turns to Victoria Ruvalo, all the essence of tough guy long since drained away. He is weeping with abandon. The attorney leads the assailant to the victim, and Victoria holds him tight, comforts him, strokes his hair, and offers reassuring words. I forgive you, she whispers. I want your life to be the best it can be. Tears mingle from mask of reconstruction and mask of remorse. It takes quite an event to bring tears to the eyes of New York attorneys and magistrates. This is such an event. TV and radio reporters file their stories in voices that for once are hushed and respectful. The New York Times dubs it a moment of grace. This particular telling of this true story uh, I borrowed from a book called Captured by Grace and I wanted to use it this morning to help lead us to a place of understanding. 
There are two parables that I want to look at with you today. They are very short, but are important enough to have been mentioned in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there aren't many parables that are mentioned in all three of these gospel accounts. In fact, there are only six, and these are two of them. So I think that they're worth mentioning in any discussion of the teachings of Jesus Christ. I want you to turn now to Matthew chapter 9. The text today is going to be up on the screen, but feel free to open your Bibles or to just raise your hands if you don't have a Bible with you today, and the ushers will bring you one so that you can follow along if you want to. Just put your hand up and they'll give you one. The accounts in each of the three Gospels are basically identical, and that to me adds even more reason why we should take a look at them. So go in Matthew chapter 9 to verse 14, and we're going to read verses 14 through 17. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the calling of Levi, or Matthew, the tax collector, and that's the, the story that comes directly before the telling of these parables. And Jesus is already doing some questionable things in his ministry, as are his followers, and he's being challenged to defend those things early on. And so this is the story from Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now you can imagine the confusion on the faces of John's disciples. What on earth did unshrunk cloth and old wineskins have to do with fasting? Well, this is one of many, many occasions where Jesus says things to turn the eyes of the people from the old way to the new way. What was the old way? What was the old way? Well, the old way was the law. God's people had exhaustive and, and I would say exhausting instructions on how to live life. Uh, read the book of Leviticus just for fun sometime. And you'll understand what I mean. It's there. Now, in Christ was coming the new way, the new covenant that God was making with his people through Christ. And part of the old way included laws regarding the practice of fasting. And I'm not going to teach a lesson on fasting today. We'll save that for another time. Uh, but the issue at hand was bigger than fasting. It had to do with the rituals of the Jews. And since those who were becoming disciples of Jesus did not fast like the others did, Jesus was questioned. And so his response addressed rituals in general, and he talked first about sewing a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. And what this simply demonstrated was this. Uh, their garments had a lot of wool in them. And so when you took a new garment and you washed it, what happens to wool? It shrinks. So after washing several times, their garment has finished shrinking. It's down to the size it's going to stay at. And now it's worn and it gets a hole in it. 
And so you go and you take a new piece of cloth, a new piece of fabric, wool fabric, and you sew it over that hole to cover it up. So what's going to happen to the new piece, the patch? It's going to shrink as the garment gets washed. And as it does, it pulls away at the fabric around us, around it, and it makes the tear even worse. So this is what he's talking about there. And then he mentions pouring new wine into old wineskins. And what they would do in Jesus' time is they would take the hide of an animal and they would clean it all off and then they would make out of it a bottle to ferment wine into. And, and they'd take this hide and sometimes they'd make it into the shape of the animal, which is just disgusting. But they'd take the hide, sew it together, make this wineskin out of it, and then they would take the freshly stomped grapes, they'd take the juice and they'd put that into that new wineskin. And what would happen is inside the wineskin, that juice, that wine would ferment, and as it fermented, it would expand, and as it expanded, it stretched, and that new wineskin would stretch with it. But when it was done expanding, it had stretched the wineskin to its limits, and the wineskin no longer had any elasticity to it. It could not stretch any further. And so they would take that fermented wine, pour it out into serving vessels of some kind, and then um, discard that wineskin that they had used because if they took new grape juice again, poured it in there, and it expanded, there's no give left in the wineskin, and so that wineskin would burst and you'd lose the wine. So that was the idea. That's what he was talking about with them. Now what Jesus was saying was that it would not work to take the new covenant that he was bringing with him and sew it onto or pour it into the old covenant. Now, he had come to fulfill the law, but he was going to do that fulfilling through the new covenant. His law would now be written on the hearts and the minds of his people, his disciples, his followers. Now, it amazes me how much we're still influenced by old covenant thinking. Uh, when you heard the, the story that I read about Victoria Ruvalo, uh, how many of you felt the tension over the need for justice to be done to Ryan Cushing? That's a very real thing that happens in us. I know for me personally, I wanted him to suffer for what he had done. I did. But this is what the law does. It makes us focus on what we think is the need for justice. This is human nature. It's a part of who we are, our old self. Uh, I doubt that I would have responded the way that Victoria did. I would likely feel sorry for Ryan and for the punishment that he'd have to face, but I would have felt justified in persecuting him to the full extent of the law. And that just shows how far I have to go and how much I need the grace that we're talking about this morning. Uh, grace is not as much of a reflex for me as it should be in my life. So what is this new way that Jesus is talking about? Well, it's grace. It's grace. And I want to just scratch the surface of this deep, rich, overwhelming subject today. The story of Victoria paints such a vivid picture of grace, and I wanted to share that with you just to get our hearts where they need to be on this subject. Uh, at the end of our service, we're going to sing together that timeless classic, Amazing Grace, and just uh, enter into the perspective that is there on the subject of grace. So let's talk about grace and its impact for a few minutes. Grace is where our salvation comes from. Grace saved me, and it saved you. Peter says in Acts 15, verse 11, 
We believe it is through grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we are saved. And Paul teaches this throughout the book of Romans. Look at Romans 3, 23 and 24. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, verse 5, he brings out the same principle again. Simply stated, it is by grace you have been saved. Uh, and I'm really anxious to get into Paul's writings with you over the years to come. The uh, concept of grace is mentioned in our New Testament 155 times, and 130 of those times are found in Paul's writing. If anybody got this concept, this new way, this new covenant, it was Paul. And we have a lot to learn from him. And he recognized the contradiction between the old way and the new way. Uh, listen to the words of Romans 11, verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Rituals don't save people. Grace saves people. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Law cannot do that any longer. Only the grace of Christ can do for us what it did for men like Peter and Paul. This is the new way that Jesus was talking about in the parables of the new cloth and the new wineskin. Now looking back two weeks again, we talked about the, the calling of Matthew in the context of mercy. And many people, myself included, have used the terms mercy and grace interchangeably. And so I want to just give you a quick demonstration of the difference between grace and mercy. They are similar, but are delivered in slightly different ways. And I think that this is a good way to recognize that subtle difference. Um, let's start with Abraham and Isaac and their story. <clears throat> mercy withholds the knife from the heart of Isaac. Grace provides a ram in the thicket. Mercy runs to forgive the prodigal son. Grace throws a party with every extravagance. Mercy bandages the wounds of the man beaten by robbers. Grace covers the cost of his full recovery. Mercy hears the cry of the thief on the cross. Grace promises paradise that day. Mercy pays the penalty for our sin at the cross. Grace substitutes the righteousness of Christ for our wickedness. Mercy converts Paul on the road to Damascus. Grace calls him to be an apostle. Mercy saves John Newton from a life of rebellion and sin. Grace makes him a pastor and an author of a tireless hymn. Mercy closes the door to hell. Grace opens the door to heaven. Mercy withholds what we have earned. Grace provides blessings that we have not earned. You get the idea? I remember as a youth growing up in Vancouver how I wanted to be at the games of our local semi-pro baseball team, uh, kind of like the St. Paul Saints here, but I couldn't afford the tickets. So my friend and I would go down to the stadium well before the game started. Uh, we needed to get our spot. There was a wooden fence surrounding the stadium, and uh, in one spot out in right field, there was a hole where a knot in the wooden fence had fallen out, and that was our spot, and we had to get there before the other kids did. We stood there the whole game, taking turns getting glimpses of those games. That was an adventure for us. We got a glimpse into a dream world. And when we experience grace 
like in the story of Victoria and Ryan, we get a glimpse into heaven itself. Grace makes us turn our heads like drivers passing an accident scene. We are grace rubberneckers. Grace goes against human nature. It goes against the reactions of the world around us, and the power of grace affects everyone. And we should be passionate about calling others over to the fence to get a glimpse of God's grace and on into heaven itself. We should be fired up about sharing with others the stories of how God's grace has been manifest in our lives and in the lives of others that we know. It's the new way, the way of the new covenant, and we'll talk a lot more about it in days to come. Now, as your pastor, I think you need to know me, and so I want to give you another kind of glimpse into something this morning as we wrap things up. Uh, This is not as breathtaking as grace is, but I want you to understand how important this concept of grace is to me, and so I'm going to share with you one of the things that makes your senior pastor mad. Now, listen to what the Lord said to Paul (laughs) about his grace in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Very simply put, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. Now, part of what drove me to preaching about this today was the arrival of yet another piece of mail from yet another person who does not get this concept of grace. I pulled the mail out of my box in the office this week and and found there a pamphlet from such a person. And I will not mention his name, although I've never heard of this guy before. But he wrote this booklet about something called The Forgotten Commandment. And here's the premise of what he feels he needs to share with the pastors of all the churches in this area. According to this knucklehead and his infinite wisdom, we are having church on the wrong day of the week. And by doing so, we're breaking the fourth commandment. And his priority in his lofty campaign is that we get back to the observance of the law. Not the law that Christ is writing on our hearts and minds, but old covenant law. And this is where I get a little bit hot under the collar. I have no tolerance for those who teach that we need to add aspects of the law to Christ's new covenant. None. Yes, there are principles that carry over from the law. Christ did not say that everything written in the law was wrong. But to claim that we are not in right standing with God because we are not observing the letter of the law is heresy and an insult to Jesus Christ. Jesus did not say, my grace and the observance of the law are sufficient. He said, my grace is sufficient, period. Now imagine trying to add law to the definitions of mercy and grace that we looked at. It would sound something like this. Mercy withholds the knife from the heart of Isaac. Grace provides a ram in the thicket. Law criticizes Abraham for walking too slowly on his way to sacrifice his son. Mercy runs to forgive the prodigal son. Grace throws a party with every extravagance. Law makes the prodigal son clean up the mess from the party. Mercy bandages the wounds of the man beaten by the robbers. Grace covers the cost of his full recovery. Law sets up a plan for the injured man to pay back what he was given by his rescuer. The man who wrote this booklet that I looked at um, 
seems to be saying, yeah, grace, I know about grace. I know about the new covenant. But this, this thing of us worshiping on the wrong day, that's what's important. That's what we need to focus on. And that's about as ridiculous as sewing a new patch onto an old garment or putting new wine into an old wineskin. Now imagine that you've just cooked a masterpiece of a meal. You've labored over the spice mixture and the levels of spices in what you've cooked. The meal has attained perfection. And you set it down in front of your spouse and without so much as even sampling the smell of the dish, he reaches for the salt, pepper, and hot sauce. How does that make you feel? Well, I think that's how God feels when we try to add to his grace. Ryan Cushing deserved a lot more than he got. Victoria could have forgiven him, but the court should, have, should not have let her determine what the level of punishment should be, right? We all deserve more than we get. But, drawing from his infinite riches, Christ says, my grace is sufficient. That's the new way. We'll revisit this grace thing soon. It raises so many questions and seems very foreign to us and our nature. That's because it goes against our very nature. But as we look into his teachings, Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, will guide us into understanding. You and I have been chosen by God to be receivers and givers of this amazing grace. Accept it and offer it. That's what our lives are to be. So, fathers, I want to leave you with a particular kind of challenge this morning. I want to show you this uh, powerful video in a few minutes. It's going to remind you of something related to your children. And I want you to pick up a a little gift that we have for you uh, on the way out. It's a little devotional booklet for you dads. You can get it at the door on your way out. Um, 25 little lessons in there for you to go through that, that will allow God to speak into your life as, as a man and a father. Now my challenge is this, fathers. Are you teaching your kids about grace? Can they hear it in your words and see it in your life? Or do they only see that, that human nature that's driven by our own need for justice? Now, the rest of you, you're not off the hook. All of us need to embrace the grace of Jesus Christ. Through it and it alone, we are saved. Saved by grace. Praise God for his grace towards us. I'm going to ask the ushers to come now as we close in prayer and prepare to give back to God out of the riches that he has bestowed on us And uh, as you give, uh, let this video be a reminder to us, dads. And then we're going to close our service by singing together about this amazing, amazing, shocking grace. Let's pray. Father, we have so much to be thankful for. One of the things that needs to always be right near the top of the list is grace. 
we have done things that, that deserve death as its punishment. We have wronged you and hurt you in so many ways. But in mercy, you hear our pleas for forgiveness. And then the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, is poured out on us. And you pick us back up and you restore us. And then you give us so much on top of that. A privileged life, a community of believers, family and friends. Help us never to fall into the trap of believing that the grace of Jesus Christ is not sufficient when it is. Bring us to the point of depending solely on that grace. Bring us to where we thank you over and over again for the grace that you have poured out on us. why you have chosen to do this for us. We're not entirely sure, but it has to be driven completely by love. And we're so thankful that you love us that much. Now help us, Father, to turn around and extend that grace to others. Even though we know what justice says needs to be done in our minds or in our society. Help us to look first for grace and watch what you do when we extend that grace to others. And as fathers, I know, Lord, that I am in need of your grace more in that area maybe than in any other area in my life. For the times when as a father I have looked for justice only for my sons. And failed to model grace for them. Teach us as fathers to do that. Model that through us to our children. Thank you for being our father, for being our perfect father for loving us and for extending an amazing, shocking grace to us. And we thank you in the name of the one who ushered in the new covenant, Jesus Christ. Amen.